The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, what do you want from your novelists, people? What do you want from them? And what do you want from their books? Do you want a sermon delivered by an infallible authority who preaches truths to the congregation? Do you want a sermon delivered by a reformed sinner, someone who struggles, someone who has lapsed? Wait a minute, who says this needs to be a sermon at all? We take up the subject of William Faulkner with one of his biographers, Carl Rollison, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, everyone. How are you? I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. My apologies to those of you eagerly awaiting this Schopenhauer episode, which if you're eagerly awaiting that, you miserable wretches, ah, poor you, my miserable brethren and sistren, Schopenhauer, I thought I was ready. And then at four o'clock this morning, when I usually awake, I heard instead the sound of pouring rain on the roof, and I thought two things. I thought, it's a cold world out there, and I'm going to stay in bed a little longer, where it's warm. And the second thing I thought was, it's a cold world out there, there's no way I'm going to do Schopenhauer today. (laughs) Which is odd, isn't it? Because the reason why he's on the list is because he's so gloomy, and I relish that sometimes. We're going to do Catullus as well, for mostly the same reason. I'm a human reveling in what it is to be human. And if some guy basically wrote the book on misery, I want to share that company. I mean, open the table of contents of Schopenhauer. This is what you get. This is the, in the essays of Schopenhauer. Here's what you get. On the suffering of the world. On the vanity of existence. On affirmation and denial of the will to live. Yes, yes, and yes. Fill my cup with your pessimistic elixir, good sir. I'm in the mood for darkness, but maybe I'm not, at least not today, even though it's pouring rain. Maybe I need to be happier or sadder. But if I'm here in the flicker, Schopenhauer is too much. At any rate, we'll do some Kafka and then some Faulkner. That should be gloomy enough, although our guest Carl Rollison, who calls himself a serial biographer, but who also has a special affinity with Faulkner, as we will hear, is a ray of sunshine. Very delightful talking to him. Guy who knows his stuff, has done his work, and, wow, has really produced a magisterial biography, as they say. And who knows, maybe the Kafka segment will be a happy one. We will see. As you know by now, we are selecting these Kafka fragments at random with our Google random number generator, 1 through 99. We'll type it in now. We never know what we will get. And if it's boring, we just move on. 1 to 99. And this time, hit the blue button and we get 17. 17 takes us to Kafka is Furious Part 2. Okay. We haven't done Kafka as Furious Part 1. Okay, here's what we'll do. Maybe we'll have to look at Part 1 instead, or both. We will see. While you sit back and enjoy the break, I will be furiously reading, desperate and sweaty, trying to 
makes sense of these pieces of Kafka's life as presented in the book, Is That Kafka? Written by Kafka's biographer, Reiner Stock. 16 and 17, Kafka is Furious, parts 1 and 2, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm back. Well, these weren't great. We'll cover them quickly. 17 is a fairly long letter that Kafka wrote to an in-law after the guy was mismanaging a factory which Kafka and his other relatives had invested in. It's kind of complicated. The most interesting thing, I thought, is a reminder that Kafka was quite competent with a legal background and a business mind, and yet he clearly wrestles with the psychology of of confronting the guy. He talks about some discrepancies that he found in the books, but he devotes a lot of the letter to apologizing for having looked at the books, which, as Reiner Stock points out, he had every right to do as an investor, but isn't that always the way? That doesn't surprise me so much. Don't we see that all the time? I discovered X on your phone, dear lover, some photos or some texts or something, and you have a lot to answer for, but first let me tell you why I was looking at your phone. (laughs) Or, hey, hey you, son, I found this in your room, now here's why I was on the floor of your closet prying up some loose loose floorboards. (sighs) Kafka was an investor, yes, but it's still a big deal to charge into an office and start inspecting the books of someone who is married to your sister. His anger in the letter is striking, though. His his fury, as it is in number 16, too, Kafka is Furious, part one, in which Kafka writes a postcard to an acquaintance that begins, quote, you lousy wretch, you're the one person it always makes me angry to think about, end quote. It goes on to say, send me the address. Apparently, Kafka was in Munich, and his friend at home in Prague wanted some things sent to him from Munich by Kafka, and Kafka was willing to do the favor but didn't know the addresses and where he should send them, and he had written to this guy five times already. He says, do I have to crawl on my knees to Prague to get them, the addresses? Which, (laughs) 
you're going to crawl on your knees to Prague, you might as well just take the stuff with you and hand deliver them, I suppose. Now, I think this uh, fury, so to speak, is probably a bit tongue-in-cheek, as Stock puts it. It's half facetious. Kafka's still trying to do this guy a favor, after all. If he was truly angry, he'd probably just just tear up the idea in his mind. Say, that's a task I don't need to do. But it is a little moment, a little human moment. I'm doing you a favor, he's saying, and you're making it impossible for me to, to do you this favor. So I now hate you, you lousy wretch. Can't stand even thinking about you. You're the only one. <laughs> makes me angry to think about you. That's honest. And indeed, the two, Kafka and this guy, dropped their friendship after this trip, which was probably for the best. Okay. We are getting ready to talk about William Faulkner. He's not a one-episode kind of guy, and he's not a one-volume biography kind of guy. Our guest, Carl Rollison, wrote two volumes. One focused on the first 37 years of, Fa of Faulkner's life from 1897 to 1934. And then the last 27 years, 1935 to 1962. His is not the first or only biography, of course, and so we look to those areas where our biographer found new material or treated material in a new way, and it turns out that he went through 105 boxes of research material at the University of Texas. It had been compiled by a previous biographer, and he found some new areas to explore, especially in Faulkner's Hollywood years. So we'll talk to him about that. But before we do, I want to talk a little about Faulkner in general, as we have before with our Faulkner and Baldwin series and with our A Rose for Emily episode with Mike Palindrome, and as we surely will in the future, probably with Light in August and Absalom, Absalom, those two novels are definitely worth episodes. And who knows, maybe we'll do The Sound and the Fury and As I Lay Dying as well. I know those are probably what most of you consider to be his greatest hits. There are at least three William Faulkners to explore. Let me back up. I talked at the beginning about whether you want your sermons to come from a, a priest or some holy figure who's above reproach, who can inspire you to be better than your best self. Do you want someone who's living a sin-free life? Or do you want someone who's scraped the bottom of the barrel, the pit, who's been down there, who knows what it's like to be a, a thieving whoremonger, let's say, or a suffering addict, who robbed and cheated and was cruel, who abandoned his family, but who has seen the light now? Or to put it more simply, who knows more about sinning and not sinning, a sinner or a not sinner? And you might say, fair enough, Jack, I see your point. Some people prefer one, some people like the other, or some people could hear the message from both. Both are valid. The message is what matters, right? It's an individual preference as to, as to what makes the messenger more compelling. Maybe some days I'm in the mood to hear from someone who's, who's uh, spotless. Maybe other days I want to hear from someone who is all full of spots. But a novelist isn't a preacher, you're saying to me, Jack Wilson, and a novel isn't a sermon. So what is your point? Well, that is kind of my point. We can say the message is all that matters, but if you're in church, 
You are listening to A Messenger Deliver It, and the novels come from the novelists. In some ways, they stand alone, and in other ways, they are inseparable. But here's why I'm making the comparison. I don't know how active you are in church, but my sense is that you want to hear the truth delivered to you, the message, you want to hear the good news or the commandments or whatever you're there for. You want that to be true, and you want to hear it so that you can become better by acting upon it. And novels don't always work like that. Novels, if they're any good at all, will not be a clear and unfiltered message of truth and righteousness and goodness. Fiction causes trouble. Fiction complicates the world. Fiction delivers a mess. It moves you and inspires you, and sometimes it seems clarifying, and sometimes it seems beautiful, but it's usually not because the author boils things down to to something prescriptive that you can align yourself with. It's not homilies. It's usually because the author generates a world that might be entertaining, might be enlightening, might be exhausting, but it's also exploratory. It explores the truth and reality. It explores complexity. It lives in the flicker, as Conrad might say. People ask me who my favorite American is, and of course I think of all the good and decent people there have been in this country, inventors and poets and even the occasional politician whose heart is in the right place and and who does some good for people. But if you tell me that you think Thomas Jefferson is the most compelling American and you give me this as your reason, that he's the one where you see most clearly that American tension between words and deeds— between ideals and actuality, between the rhetoric that all men are created equal and the private belief that all does not really mean all. And so what the hell does that mean for the rest of us? If that's your argument, that Thomas Jefferson is your most compelling American, well, I'd have a hard time objecting. He's the American dream, the American nightmare, the American experiment, the great American contradiction all wound up in one. It's like New York City being the richest and the poorest city, the sleekest and the filthiest, the most American and the most global. It's an intensity that's hard to match. That's Thomas Jefferson, too. The good, the bad, and the ugly all rolled into one. If you're a historian, there's plenty there to find, probably more to find, to explore, than you would find with a pure saint or a pure sinner. Faulkner is like that. I can give you three William Faulkners. One is the one he wanted, the invisible author, the one who only wrote novels and left no other trace. His ambition, he once said, was to be, quote, abolished and voided from history, leaving it markless, no refuse, save the printed books, end quote. That's the novelist you want if you only want the novels. If you can divorce your message from your messenger, if you say, I don't even need to know who wrote this. I'll just, I believe in art standing alone. I'll just pull this off the shelf and read it. Start on page one, finish on page whatever, 300. Close the book. Who cares what the author's life experience was? Who cares what his or her political or social views were. Who cares if the author was from the South or the North, was white or was black, was a man or was a woman, was writing as a young person looking ahead or an old person looking back. 
We strip all that away. We have the text. We read the novels. So be it. I think Faulkner would like that. His epitaph, he hoped, would say, he made the books and he died. Not many clues there. Well, we have a couple. It's a he and he's dead. Two small clues. The rest lives in his fiction, which is not a bad thing or not a bad starting point. Who cares what Jefferson really thought when he wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The important thing is that he said all men are created equal. We expand that to include women and we have the kind of country we want or we want to aspire to. Faulkner's novels are the thing. Without them, he'd be just another guy. So let's read the novels. And as we will see, I think Faulkner knew he was better in his novels than he was in real life. That might be one reason why he wanted to erase himself. So that's one William Faulkner. The man disappeared. Warts and all, strengths and all, too. Another William Faulkner, let's just say it straight out, an unreconstructed Southern man of his era who said some very ugly things at times. We've talked about these before. Maybe we don't need to dwell on them here, but they're inexcusable. He said he was as against forced integration as he had been against forced segregation. Okay, fine. Lots of people thought that was taking the middle ground. He's saying, go slow. He's saying, basically, you have no idea what a powder keg this is. I do. I live among these people. You're going to get people killed if you integrate the schools. If you have black kids going to school with white kids, if you bust them, if you force the southern states to do this, well, these racists around me are violent and will shoot people and blow things up. So let's give it time. Let's change attitudes first. Let's do this gradually over a few generations, maybe a few decades, a century. What's the rush? Lots of people pointed out, well, go slow often means don't go. And going slow means giving in to the bullies. And going slow means entire lives have to be lived with no justice and little hope. But fine, there's a trade-off. We don't want to get people killed, too. But Faulkner didn't stop there. If he stopped there, maybe we'd, maybe we'd live with it. Say he was, he was on the side of political expedience, or he was a realist or something like that. He didn't stop there. He said if troops were sent to integrate the schools and it came to fighting, quote, I'd fight for Mississippi against the United States, even if it meant going out into the street and shooting Negroes, end quote. Disgusting. Appalling. And then you pick up the novel, you look at the shelf of novels and think, is this the man who has something to say to us? This is the man who's supposed to, we're supposed to work kind of hard to read these books? For what? For what? When he's got ideas like that, and it's, what do you want from your novelist people? How do you trust a man with opinions this vile or this wrongheaded? If Ezra Pound says he's got lots to say about economics, and then he starts frothing at the mouth about the Jews being in charge of all the money, do you trust him on economics? Well, no. But he's not writing an economics textbook, is he? Or he kind of wrote kind of wrote one that is sort of easily ignored. He's writing poetry. 
and Faulkner is writing novels. And so we come to the third William Faulkner, which is the one who's in the thick of this issue and is writing the best novels he can, sometimes with a high modern flair, which led the French to consider him a god, but often, from our vantage point today, the high modernism, the shifting consciousnesses, the stops and starts, the language breakdowns, the language, the sentences that spiral off into infinity. From this vantage point, that all can look like a guy who's trying to say the unsayable, to wrestle with a past full of ghosts and demons and hard-to-resolve beliefs, jutting up against other beliefs. Faulkner knew the Southern soul was a soul in turmoil, including his. He knew what it looked like from the outside, too. Tell us about the South, a Canadian student asks one of Faulkner's characters. This is in uh, one of his books. Absalom, Absalom, I think. The Canadian student asks a Southern character, what's it like there in the South? What did they do there? Why did they live there? Why did they live at all? This Faulkner, the third William Faulkner in my schema, didn't shy away from his historical present. This man whose great-grandfather had been a slave owner and a Confederate Army officer, this William Faulkner, who was born a year after the Supreme Court legalized racial segregation in Plessy v. Ferguson, and who, this man who died the year the University of Mississippi finally allowed a black student to attend with federal troops accompanying the student to keep him safe. That was the lifespan of Faulkner's world in Mississippi. It was a world where, where a mob, this was Faulkner's childhood, a mob would break into a jail. This happened when he was 11. Drag in his town. Drag a black man accused of killing a white woman into the streets. And later, this is the unimaginable part, although sadly it's all too easy to imagine. A former U.S. senator boasted the next day, I led the mob that lynched him and I'm proud of it. At least 293 black people were lynched in Mississippi in the 1890s and 1900s, the years of Faulkner's childhood. Faulkner's childhood was steeped in this culture. The third William Faulkner is the one who wrestled with this in his fiction and in himself. He knew the contradiction after he had said to that reporter that he'd be in the streets shooting Negroes if it came to that. He apologized, said he'd been drunk when he said it, and he said no sober man would make those statements and no sane man would believe them. In his view, when W.E.B. Du Bois offered to debate William Faulkner, Faulkner said, We agree that the position you will take is right, morally, legally, and ethically. He knew where he should be. And he knew where some part of him was. His mind soared with the eagles, with the angels, but his belly, his gut, crawled along with the reptiles. And he knew, I think, that his fiction was stronger because he dealt with this. That's why his fiction was better than he himself was. In his fiction, he could wrestle with it. He didn't have to 
He he wasn't being hypocritical. He was wrestling with it. Eudora Welty, his fellow Southerner, said he went out on every limb that he knew was there. The poet's, the writer's duty is to write about these things, he said in his Nobel Prize speech in 1950. He was talking about the spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. It's a duty to write about these things, but he might have been talking about everything. The world, the hard truths, the problematic, that inner soul turmoil, the contradictions. That's the writer's duty to write about these things, to write about everything under the sun, plus all the darkness, especially the darkness. This is my third Faulkner, the one who was called the American Dostoevsky, the one who was called the American Balzac, the one who wrote novel after novel, some good, many great, who tackled the world on his typewriter and drank bourbon until he was senseless. Why Faulkner? Well, why not? We don't need to take his words as gospel. We don't need to bow down at his altar. And he's long gone. We're not putting coins in his coffers if we buy his books. We read to enrich ourselves, to find what makes sense, and to test ourselves against what doesn't. We read actively, not as vessels to be filled by the holy man, but as emperors of the night, conquerors, grabbing our feast by the fistful, eating what's to our taste, what we want, what we have earned, what we deserve. We trust ourselves to reject what is wrong, what is wrong-headed and misthought. Faulkner was revered in his day, honored by many, criticized, but in that way that mountains and monuments are criticized. And now we can choose not to read him, which you can do if you want. That's fine. I'm not running a university here. I don't need to fight a battle over who's in and who's out and what that means. I'm not allocating resources to any professors or syllabi. I don't have to take sides. <laughs> you can read whatever you want or not read. But if you're looking for a writer who embodies all kinds of monstrous contradictions, who's a fascinating creature, who expended great skill and energy and who believed in the power of fiction, who generated an incredible body of work, and whose strengths and flaws are as identifiable and irresistible as any of his fellow writers, probably more so than most, then this is a guy to consider. Open the book, read, engage, criticize, praise, go where he wants you to go sometimes, and resist going where he wants you to go at others. Faulkner is a god, said Jean-Paul Sartre. No, he's not. Sorry, Jean-Paul, he's not a god, he's a human, which is what we want our novelists to be. Okay, so, <laughs> got kind of a full head of steam there and couldn't figure out how to stop. <laughs> this train doesn't always have brakes, people. As always, the best way to stop a train would be to 
gently apply the brakes and roll into the station as scheduled. But the fastest way of stopping a train is just to to accelerate and fly off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> Look for the bend and go straight. I'm not saying that's how I how I intend to do it, but I will note that they have renamed the cliff Jack's Folly. And they've put up some some coin-operated binoculars with a sign that says, look down and see the wreckage below. There's a lot of trains down there still smoking. 488 episodes now? <laughs> Counting, we, must have, we must have at least 500 trains down there. Okay, let's hear from someone who actually knows what he's talking about. Carl Rollison, biographer extraordinaire, who is also very interested in Hollywood, if you look at his list of biographies he's written. And that is a nice confluence because Hollywood is an often misunderstood part of Faulkner's life and biography, as we will hear. So, Carl Rollison, after this. Okay, joining me now is Carl Rollison, professor of journalism at Baruch College, the City University of New York. Professor Rollison has published more than 40 books, including biographies of Lillian Hellman, Martha Gellhorn, Norman Mailer, Rebecca West, Susan Sontag, Sylvia Plath, and Marilyn Monroe. He joins us today to discuss his two-volume biography, The Life of William Faulkner. Volume 1, The Past is Never Dead, and Volume 2, This Alarming Paradox. Carl Rollison, welcome to the History of Literature. I'm pleased to be here. So sometimes when I interview a literary biographer, they're so tied to their subject, I almost don't even need to ask this question because they're, like, for example, with Faulkner, maybe it was a person who was born and raised in Mississippi, and they hold the William Faulkner Distinguished Chair of Literature at the University of Mississippi, and you just think, this person was destined to write this book. But you're more of a serial biographer. I understand you're writing a, a book called uh, Memoirs of a Serial Biographer. So you have choices, and, and there's a whole landscape of authors you could choose. What drew you to William Faulkner as a subject for a biography? Well, uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I began reading Faulkner as an undergraduate before, long before I knew I would be a biographer. Mm -hmm. And I was heading toward a sabbatical year, and I had done some reviewing for a newspaper, The New York Sun, and a recent Faulkner biography had come out. And it was a pretty good biography, but sort of set the wheels turning. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, a as a professional biographer, I could see things in that book and other Faulkner biographies that I had read that I felt were missing, that there was room for a new approach. Mm. And I should say that though I've done all these other biographies, my first love is William Faulkner. I did my dissertation on Faulkner. Oh, right. Wow. Uh, and my my first book was a revision of my dissertation, and that takes us back to 1970s. Right. Uh, the, I got my PhD in 1975. So I've been reading and thinking uh, about Faulkner for a long, long time. Yeah. So what were the questions that the previous biographies had not fully answered to your satisfaction? From my perspective, as a the kind of biographer I am, I often say I'm I'm a biographer of the whole man, and that means it doesn't matter whether the figure is a politician or a literary figure or whatever their career has been. 
I'm interested in every aspect of them. Mm. And most of the Faulkner biographies have been written by literary scholars. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that there's a kind of narrow range, uh, Mm. almost a kind of tunnel vision in a way. So that, for instance, when they dealt with his uh, work in Hollywood, it was sort of like, uh, well, he went out there and, and he didn't like it and he picked up a check. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> yeah. you know, they want to talk about his novels, which is perfectly understandable. But from a biographer's point of view, you're thinking, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, even if you, we live in a world of mixed motivations. I mean, when I taught, I picked up the check. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, everyone picks up the check. And that doesn't mean that what you're doing, uh, you don't care deeply about or it doesn't have some impact on you. And no biographer seemed to really take that on board to understand what it meant to be completely, in a sense, a writer and to do these other things, not to just to write novels. And then there were things about him as a person that I felt weren't investigated at all mm. and that there were sources, untapped sources that I, I could use for the biography. So the more I thought about it, the more excited I got. And then I've been to Mississippi many times into Faulkner's hometown, Oxford. And I, I met with the husband of his niece, who's deceased. Uh, the husband's name is Larry Wells and talked it over with him as well as with Jay Watson, a Faulkner scholar at the university of Mississippi, essentially asking them, you know, I think there's room for another Faulkner biography. What do you think? Mm. As soon as I explained what I wanted to do, they said, Oh yeah. Yeah, there's certainly room for another Faulkner biography. Okay, so oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's talk about Hollywood first and then talk about some of the personal issues that you delved sure. into. So I think that the general conception is he went to Hollywood. It was maybe a little beneath him to work on screenplays. He was sort of good at it, but it paid the bills. And then he got back home to the South. And that does leave a lot out, uh, including just what it was like to be there and and also how it changed him and how it affected his novels later, if it did. So I'm just interested, though, how did this come about? Was it was it a a friend in Hollywood, an admirer of his works or how did he end up? uh, I guess it was getting on a train and heading out there. Right. Well, what happened was he had uh, published some great novels, The Sound of the Fury and As I Lay Dying, two of his masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And actually, he had written a novel in between called Sanctuary, which his publisher, Harrison Smith, said, oh, we can't publish that right now. It's a little too bold mm. uh, in the way it dealt with crime and sexuality. But once Faulkner did The Sound of the Fury and As I Lay Dying, they came back to it. Smith was quite willing to publish it. And that became, because there's a scene in the book in which a woman is raped, this became an incredible sensation, controversy. And publishers suddenly got interested in him. Mm. And he was invited to New York to meet with several publishers. And he met some Hollywood agents. And his wife had gone to school with the actress Tallulah Bankhead. And someone contacted Faulkner while he's in New York and said, why don't you write a screenplay or at least a screen treatment for Tallulah? And Faulkner was quite excited by this and said to his wife, you know, how's this for high? That is, he had never had that kind of attention at all. And he, he wrote something which wasn't very good. Only vestiges of it remain. So we don't know exactly what he did, but it didn't lead to anything immediately. And he went on to write another novel, Light in August, 
And at that point, Hollywood agent contacted his agent and sent him a telegram and said, is Faulkner available? And this is in 1932, and Faulkner, uh, Faulkner agrees to go out to Hollywood and to work for MGM. Yeah. And was he glad to be out of the South, uh, I guess, in his trips to New York and to California? Was he kind of looking to escape from some of his his family obligations and so on and, and have a kind of working vacation? Or did he feel like a fish out of water who couldn't wait to get back home? You know, it was both. Yeah. Right. Uh, he wanted that change of pace. But as soon as he got to Hollywood, it was so different from the South. And there was so much, uh, you know, fakery and glad handing and that sort of insincerity yeah. as far as he was concerned. He didn't care for that at all. He didn't care for the social climate at all. But the thing you need to know about Faulkner is, you used the phrase before about his attitude toward Hollywood, uh, that did he feel it was beneath him? He never felt that. Mm. That's what F. Scott Fitzgerald felt, that mm -hmm. Hollywood was... He was Fitzgerald was intrigued by Hollywood, but he went there as a great writer, as far as he was concerned, you mm -hmm. know, in his own mind, his own imagination. And, I mean, he never said exactly he was slumming, but he was very offended yeah. when people changed the scripts and things right. like that. Right. Faulkner, Faulkner was nothing like that. Oh, interesting. If you gave him an idea for a film or if he had an idea for a film, he did the best possible job he could. Yeah. And there was no... Uh, oh, certainly he wanted to get back home and write his novels. Yeah. Uh, although in Hollywood, he wrote some of his novels. I was going to ask that. He could write. Yeah. yeah. Did he head out there thinking, well, this will be fine. I'll work I'll work at the studio during the day. And then at night I can pound away at my typewriter and, and write the books I was born to write and so on. What I can say is he did that. Mm. He never said that that's what he was going to do. One of yeah. the most intriguing things for a biographer of Faulkner is that he left no diaries. He wrote letters, but his letters compared to, say, the letters of Fitzgerald or Hemingway, with some, of course, remarkable exceptions, his letters are not very revealing. He mm. kept no journal. He wasn't a man who observed himself and had to put himself down in words. He gave everything to the work, whether that was a Hollywood script, a novel, a short story, an essay that he was writing. It all went onto the page. And he really had no patience with writers who said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do this. Uh, he thought that was a big waste <laughs> so, of time. Let's talk about, I think this comes out of your first volume, and that is Faulkner and his sense of history in the past. And on the one hand, as you note, he's famously associated with the past and his statements about it and, and the way that it comes into his work. But there also seem to be some suggestions that he would have preferred to sit down at the typewriter with a clean slate as if the past had never happened. And I'm wondering if he viewed it as a, a burden or an obligation for him as a novelist or an opportunity or how did he how did he view the past in the way that it intruded upon his personal life and his art? I think that he certainly grew up with this strong sense of the past, as many Southerners did in his era, with the idea of the lost cause, losing the Civil War, and so mm -hmm. on, and a family that had been involved in the war as well. So he inherited a lot of the tales about gallant Southern soldiers and so on. So it was, a, in that sense, the past was inescapable. 
mm. in his own family, in his own culture. But I think what made him different, what made him stand out, was his interest in writing, first of mm. all in poetry and then later in fiction. And when this idea of him sitting down at the typewriter and not thinking about the past, I think had more to do with that creative moment. Mm. In that creative moment, he could deal with the past in much better, in a sense, mm. much more inventively, creatively, by writing about it. Yeah. Uh, I think he was much more a prisoner of the past when he wasn't working with a page uh, with his writing when he had to be a husband and a son mm. and uh, fulfill the sort of obligations of a white Southerner in a, um, a segregated society. That actually was more difficult, I think, than sitting down with a piece of paper and becoming godlike, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, he, he said this, I can move these characters around in space like God. And I think that liberated him literature liberated him in a way that his own culture could not. Yeah. Uh, and he's certainly not the only writer to have experienced that. But given a society where, for instance, his great-grandfather was called the Old Colonel, and who had been in the Civil War, had also been a, the owner of a railroad, quite a famous man in his own right. And so he was called the Old Colonel, and his son was called the Young Colonel. What's interesting about that, and this is, was often true in the South, is that you inherited these titles. Mm. You know, the son never was in the military, he was never a colonel of any kind, <laughs> but he could still be addressed as colonel. And so there was this sense of hierarchy yeah. uh, that Faulkner, in a sense, was, was bound by two, just as a a citizen of his community, and yet, as I say, literature provided him with a kind of outlet, a kind of contact with the rest of the world that his own friends and neighbors never really quite understood. Yeah. And if someone were to view Faulkner, I think everyone is kind of familiar with the way he would look back to his lineage and and so on. But if they were to view him as someone who was trying to recreate his family tree and be very accurate and tell the stories as if he were sort of a journalist, they would sort of have a wrong conception of what he was doing, right? He was he was yeah. taking it as raw material, but he supplied a lot of imagination and invention rather than feeling, oh, I need to tell my grandfather or my great-grandfather's story. That's right. And he wasn't even particularly interested in the facts. He was interested in the stories, yeah. the stories about his great-grandfather. And then he would he would elaborate on those stories. In fact, he was interviewed by someone who was writing the first biography of his great-grandfather, and the the scholar was asking questions, a lot of, a lot of questions about his great-grandfather that Faulkner didn't know. Mm. And at one point, after all this questioning, Faulkner said to the scholar, oh, you could just make up some of it. <laughs> and, and the scholar very politely said, well, Mr. Faulkner, you've already done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's sort of a, a conception we have. I think it's very modern as we try to wrestle with Faulkner on issues of race and how to fit him into the American canon, especially with our modern sensibility. And there's this, I think it's a, a pretty commonly held view that Faulkner the novelist was maybe better than Faulkner the person, or he was, he's worth reading even if 
some of his statements to journalists and so on would make it think that he was stuck with an outdated view of the past and was not so good on racial relations and stuff. Is that how Faulkner viewed himself? Did he sort of think, well, if you really want to know what I think, look to my novels or in my novels, I'm a better person than I am in real life? Yeah, this is the problem with Faulkner. We don't know. Oh, we don't yeah. know what he thought. In other words, he never said, I'm a better person than my novels, for uh-huh. example. Yeah. But the novels came first in this sense. He did answer questions about his novels, but people never got very far in answering those questions mm. because he put so much of himself in the novels. I think there was always the temptation, and sometimes when he was short-tempered, he would practically say this, you know, well, read the novel. You know, in other words, right. uh, you know, you're asking me to extract something from a very complex work of literature. And, and again, he never said this because he was a very polite man most of the time. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. I think what's, for me, what people miss nowadays when they read some of his statements about, you know, he was, he was in favor of integration. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, he would, you know, he's famous for this phrase, go slow now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that this all should come very gradually. Yeah. And uh, for people, black people who've been wait, who are waiting, you know, for 300 years, they didn't want to hear that. Right. And many people who supported civil rights didn't want to hear that. So he certainly got in trouble for those statements. On the other hand, um, more than any other writer I know of in, in America, uh, any other white writer, that's for sure, Faulkner felt absolutely comfortable with African Americans. Yeah. Uh he he loved African Americans. That's why the last statement in my book about um uh, Faulkner comes from this African American who knew him as a little boy and who paid his respects at Faulkner's funeral cuz he saw, you know, um uh, uh, a man that very very few other people saw. Uh, you asked you asked me uh, earlier about you know people I interviewed uh, quite by accident because uh, I post on Facebook. Someone contacted me and they said, you know, I have a, this friend whose family, when Faulkner was a writer in residence at the University of Virginia, she met Faulkner and her, her family knew Faulkner. Would you like to interview her? And I'm thinking, would I like to interview? Of course I would. There, you know, Faulkner died in 1962. There aren't that many people around yeah, who, right. you know, who knew the man. So a few people at the University of Virginia that I talked to. And so I got in touch with her and I talked with her. And it turns out she was from a very wealthy, well-established Virginia family. And they were hosting Faulkner kind of dinner party, and they had invited, you know, very prominent people around and so on. And she was just a young girl then. And she said at one point, she said Faulkner disappeared. Nobody could find him. Uh, and, of course, you know, they wanted to introduce him to this person, that person. And he, he often didn't like that because it was like, you know, someone is showing off their prize uh, racehorse to somebody, mm-hmm. you know. He, he was, in that sense, he, he he didn't like being somebody's token. So she went looking for him, and she found him. And he was in the kitchen with the black help, mm. sitting there talking to them and, you know, uh, just sort of relaxing. That was, mu- he felt much more comfortable and relaxed 
among them than he ever did among, you know, these prominent uh, Virginians. And there, there's just a lot of evidence of that, you know, of him behaving in that way. Yeah. And keen interest. He was, uh, he, he, besides his mother, he had a, essentially a second mother, a black woman who brought up all the Faulkner boys in the household, and they all felt this strong kinship with her. But the curious thing is, his brothers, his mother, and the whole family, they were all segregationists. Uh, they all believed in the inferiority of black people. Uh, and and when Faulkner began making his earliest statements supporting the Supreme Court uh, Brown versus Board education decision, they were absolutely appalled. They had no idea. <laughs> you know, if they had just read his work, they would know it. But often it's true. And I've, I've known this from interviewing uh, families of writers. They often don't read their fathers or grandfathers or whoever it is. The, the work that's being produced, right. they, they're, they're, they don't see that. Uh, and so it came as quite a shock to, to Faulkner's friends and his hunting buddies and other people uh, that he would express such views. Yeah. Do you think, and and his comfort seems to translate into his depictions in fiction as well, that it was a, a subject he didn't shy away from. And a lot of white no. novelists in the 20th century would have just ignored it. Or, you know, there's maybe token references here and there, but yeah. it's an issue yeah. he took head on. And do you think he he saw it as, well, as a novelist, I'm looking for sources of conflict. I'm looking for the places where the human heart has to dig deepest and so on. And so he he naturally found himself drawn toward those kinds of topics because he knew it was going to be the richest source of material for him as a novelist? Or do you think he... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, I think that, well, if you believe in the segregation of the races, if you think some people are superior to other people, you're cutting out a lot of human experience. Mm. You know, you're, there are a lot of things you're you're never going to know. And the interesting thing about Faulkner was that it, it wasn't just that he wanted to know these things. He also knew that there were certain things about African-Americans he would never be able to know simply because of the color of his skin. Mm. In other words, what he recognized was segregation damaged him. Mm. It, it would have made him a lesser artist if he had lived by those segregationist principles. He, he would have shut off a whole kind of connection with humanity. The, his, to me, one of his greatest creations, and this is a novel which is often not considered among his masterpieces, is a novel he wrote, uh, published in 1948, Intruder in the Dust. And he has this character named Lucas Beecham, who's absolutely undaunted by segregation, even when he's accused of murder and is incarcerated. Uh, and... Uh, one of his honey, hunting buddies, John Cullen, wrote a memoir about Faulkner. And one of the things he says in it is that no one like Lucas Beecham could actually have existed. You know, he would have been lynched because he was so independent uh, of other people. Uh, but that was sort of Faulkner's point, is that we have to try to imagine somebody like that. And what gives me chills is the person of Lucas Beecham actually came along in reality just shortly a few months after Faulkner died. And that's when James Meredith decided that he alone was going to integrate the University of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And to begin with, the NAACP said to him, Mississippi's too tough a case. 
you know, even Thur- the great Thurgood Marshall, who argued Brown versus Board of Education, said to Meredith, you can't do this. And Meredith says, the hell I can't. I'm an Air Force veteran. I'm a U.S. citizen. I have a right to go to the University of Mississippi, and I have the credentials and the background to do it. And he forced the federal justice department, the federal marshals who came onto campus. And he eventually really almost single-handedly integrated that university. And that's what Faulkner was dreaming of, that some individual would come along like Lucas Beecham. So it didn't bother him one bit that someone right then in 1948 could not have survived as Lucas Beecham because he was writing a work of the imagination. Let's just imagine there was somebody like this. Mm -hmm. What would happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to lay it all out there for everyone to see, we sometimes Faulkner will be criticized for a patrician view or for physical stereotypes and so on, but he's at least giving us that presentation for us to mull over and agree with what we agree with and contest what we disagree with. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he's, as I've said before, he's devoting himself completely to the work of writing. So, you know, and he would often say, my characters appear to me. And he said this in Hollywood, too, to Mita Carpenter when she was taking some dictation for a movie script he was working on. And she said, well, why does the character do this and why does the character that? And Faulkner said, all I could tell you is what the character's telling me. Mm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about Joseph Blotner. Sure. And you mentioned, the quote I have here is, that he chose not to use certain discoveries about Faulkner's life that became an important part of my narrative, meaning your narrative. What kinds of discoveries did Blotner leave out of his book that you wanted to dive into? Well, Faulkner, in the last years of Faulkner's life, Blotner was a faculty member at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and organized a good deal of Faulkner's life for him as a writer in residence. And so he became a kind of friend of the family, and that's always a difficult position mm-hmm. uh, for someone to be in. Uh, you know, you, on the one hand, you have access to the subject. On the other hand, if the subject becomes a friend, one of the things that Blotner said, for example, and I just... I would have liked to kick Blotner. Blotner said, <laughs> I, did, I decided not to write down, you know, various things that Faulkner said, you know, as if he were spying on Faulkner, oh. you know, using... That's exactly what James Boswell did in his life with yeah, Daniel Johnson. Right. You know, he was constantly taking notes right. and, and, <laughs> and sometimes annoying Johnson with doing it, but he did it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so you become sort of the uh, custodian of the secrets, Right. And I think one of the lamentable things about that, and there, we have a lot to be grateful to Joseph Blotter for, for sure. I call his book The Bedrock of Faulkner Biography because he did establish so many things in Faulkner Biography that every subsequent biographer relies on. But after Faulkner died, he was close to uh, Faulkner's wife, Estelle. And as far as I can tell, and, and Blotter left papers at the Center for Faulkner Studies in Southeast Missouri State University that I went through completely because I, I wanted to know what what Blotner knew and, and how he how he operated as a biographer. And it's very clear to me, he never pressed Estelle about various crucial issues about their marriage, which he thought of his writing, 
you know, how he interacted with people. Mm. Uh, I learned most of that kind of thing from letters that her son, Malcolm Franklin, who adored Faulkner, would write to her when he was in the service during World War II. I found his archive at the University of South Carolina. Mm. So there was a whole aspect of Faulkner as a husband and as a family man that I think Blotner writing while Estelle was still alive and then 10 years later, he did a shortened version of his biography. But he, I don't know if it was too late then, or he still felt the need to exercise certain discretion. I'm from the Boswell School, which essentially means I'm indiscreet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking for everything. Again, going back to the, the concept of the whole man is terribly important to me, so that the figure isn't somewhere up there on a pedestal, I mean, everybody knows that as a human being, Faulkner had flaws, but he had flaws in such interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so okay, all biography is a kind of detective work, but with him especially, since he's going to be so closed-mouthed about things. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I got when I came across a letter that wasn't available. It was in a family archive and then published in a book just as I was working on my biography. It's a long letter he writes about a screenplay that he does about uh, Sutter's based on a novel, Sutter's Gold. And the plot is he outlines it to a the man who became a friend. He was actually sold uh, Faulkner's home to him, Roanoke. He describes in detail about how exciting it is to work on this screenplay. Well, you can't find another letter like that. Mm. But if there's one letter where he can sort of let down his hair and tell it to somebody who's not going to broadcast it to the world, but who's going to be interested in it, then that tells us something important about things that Faulkner knew that he never wanted to talk about or that he felt that he never wanted to talk about. Right, right. So as we're coming to a close here, I kind of have one final question. Hopefully this isn't too broad, but I'm wondering, you spent so much time reading Faulkner and thinking about him, and this is a book that's sort of decades in the making, and then you had the chance to to dive into the life, to go through all this material and, and to learn more. Did you come away from it feeling like, I mean, what was your overall impression? Were you, were you bored? Were you frustrated? Were you, did you think less of him as a person? Did you admire him more? Or what was your kind of before and after of your understanding of Faulkner as a person? I, I would say I grew to like him even more mm-hmm. because there were there were sides to him. The way he treated women, for example, not just the women he was in love with, but his stepdaughter and her daughter and his niece and the way he would speak with them. And then speaking with the, uh, his niece's husband, Larry Wells, learning about how he treated her how important family was to him. Mm. And he liked to be called Pappy, and how these women adored him. And But also, as he watched them growing up, you could see in his later novels, particularly in The Mansion, the third novel, in the Snopes trilogy, how he learned from these women. And that novel in particular is about how men don't understand women. Mm. And I think he was coming to understand as an older man, how much he had, in a sense, missed in 
he does a pretty good job with his women characters. But nevertheless, I think that novel is a breakthrough. Uh, It's published in 1959, I think, in his understanding of women. He creates a woman, Linda Snopes, who's a veteran of the Spanish Civil War and is a, a civil rights advocate and does a number of things which the men in her life really don't understand until the really the very end of the novel when she really surprises them and drives off in her Jaguar. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very interesting... And at the time when, when it was reviewed, it, it got mixed to negative reviews. The reviewers simply didn't understand what he was doing. Mm. Uh, they they just they were clueless. Even some very very bright critics really didn't understand the direction he was moving in. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting because what I was just about to say is he. One of my favorite quotes of Faulkner is when they asked, you know, the best novel ever written, and he said, "Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina." And Tolstoy is so famous for that empathy that, uh, as you're describing, Faulkner seems to have taken it on as his business as a novelist, too, that this is, it's important to imagine things from everyone's point of view and to listen to the stories that everyone has and to be aware of the narrative that we might never be able to participate in because of limitations of race or social status or class or something, but that they're out there and that they're worthwhile to put into a book. He did not have, as Tolstoy did, a kind of prose that would always make it easy for people to understand what he was doing, or he had more of a an artistic sense, I guess, maybe it's post, you know, the modernist movement or whatever it was, that maybe it was just the way that he himself kind of put words together in his mind, that it isn't always as easily accessible as someone like a Tolstoy is, at least in translation. And so, but it it is, in talking to you, I, I'm just, I wish we could kind of remember that even though Faulkner is difficult, what's there is this intense empathy to try to understand, and maybe that's a good lesson for us to take, that we need to try to understand Faulkner, because he had all of these many different sides and is worth kind of trying to get to know and to get to know the way he thought about things, because he's got his own very particular point of view. I think that's true. He wrote 19 novels. I think I think the other thing people have to realize is there there are a handful of them, three or four, that you might consider really difficult reading, mm-hmm. but that leaves a lot of novels and a lot of growth and a lot of subject matter that isn't terribly difficult mm-hmm. to read. Mm-hmm. And so I think in that sense, and that's another thing I think that the previous biographies did, is they saw this great period from 29 to 42, and I think they really missed the story of his growth, both as a person and as a writer, right to the day he died. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's a much more complex story. Mm. Well, it is one worth digging into, and a good guide to it is your two-volume biography. Carl Rollison, thank you very much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Thank you to Carl Rollison for joining us. He's a serial biographer, folks. This is a game he knows how to play. He's a master at it. He's got another one in the works which we will share with you when we give you his My Last Book. Hint, it involves Hollywood. My thanks also to William Faulkner and Franz Kafka, I guess, and to Schopenhauer, that miserable wretch, 
It's still raining here, and I'm headed for you now, Arthur. Let's see if you can match my own miserable mood, and if we can find any joy there. Or if it's just misery all the way down. Sound like fun? Well, it's not bad. Maybe I'll... <laughs> Things could be worse. Maybe I'll eat a piece of dark chocolate and refute him thus. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.